Welcome back to another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites, a nerdy news podcast where three entomologists with the National Pest Management Association compete to see who can do the best job at covering a recent science story or a news headline. I'm Brittany Campbell, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jim Fredericks and Michael Bentley. Our special guest for this episode is AJ Alonzo. Super excited, AJ. Thank you for being here with us today. Uh, and before we get started, you want to tell us a little bit about your company, where you're located, and maybe a little background on your history in control. Absolutely. I first off want to thank thank you all for having me. Um, it was a pretty pretty cool opportunity to have. Um, like you said, I'm with uh, Columbus Pest Control. Um, it's myself, my brother Brian, and my father uh, Lonnie and Alonzo um, in the in the business right now. We're based out of Columbus, Ohio. Um, we've done pest control pretty much all over Ohio um, throughout our time. Um, now we're pretty much just Columbus and surrounding counties. Um, our company started its third generation right now. It started back in 1946 um, by a, a guy named uh, George Mooney. Um, he was good friends with um, my grandfather who had a pest control company in Cuba. Um, and he was actually the first international member of MPMA and PCA at that time. Um, and then when they fled Cuba, George helped them get out um, and then offered my grandfather a job. Um, and when he passed away, the widow sold the business to my grandfather. And then my father took over from there. And now my brother and I are in the process of taking it over ourselves. So it's, uh, it's been a fun journey for sure. Um, I myself, you know, would do, you know, things, odds and end things um, for my dad when I was younger. But uh, once I graduated high school, um, went right into working full time with him. Um, was supposed to go to Wright State um, and work the summer with him. Decided that that's what I wanted to do with my life and the rest is history. So that's where we're at. I said that's uh that is a cool story, AJ. I just, I just love to hear. Um, I've heard that story. I've heard your dad tell me that story before too. And it's just, it's so neat, uh, you know, with your grandfather um, having a pest control in Cuba and then, you know, you know, you know, fleeing Cuba, coming here, um, getting connected and then, uh, and then starting this business that is really like an icon uh, in terms of pest control in, um, in Ohio. And honestly, uh, your company has been a leader with NPMA for, for years. So, um, we are really, it's really cool to see now third generation involved. I don't think I knew that your grandfather, that your grandfather's company was the first international member. So that's a cool tidbit. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, it I don't know exactly the full, uh, extent of the story. You could, uh, ask my dad sometime, but he, there was a whole, um, committee made up to, to get him approved. Um, so it's, it's, I always enjoy, you know, listening to my dad tell it and, and his excitement. So the other fun thing, you know, that I take pride in, you know, my, when my grandfather came over here, obviously he didn't speak any English, um, worked, work hard at, uh, learning English and then helped with a group of other, um, owners in Ohio, write The Ohio pesticide law, um, back then. So he's, he's, uh, been quite involved even from the start. He actually was the funny story too, is. When he was in Cuba, he was um, an accountant 
he saw the books, uh, helped fix the books for um, the pest control company out there and decided that he liked it and bought the company and been in it ever since. So. Wow, that's such an incredible story and the history behind it's so wild. Do you happen to know what, off the top of your head what the name of the company was in Cuba? And whenever he left, did he, did he just shut down the business there or did he leave it with somebody else? He just, I mean, he fled, his employees stayed, you know, I don't know the answer of whether um, he truly shut it down or if it, you know, just as anything, when you left, you just, they came over with, you know, the shirts on their backs. Um, so I, I don't know to answer that question. As far as the name, I, I do know it. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> And I'm sure that, you know, my family listening to this would be kind of disappointed in me that I can't pronounce it. Um, well, I'm, I'm probably one of the worst Cubans in the fact that I speak very little Spanish. Um, and, you know, of course, my family gives me crap about that all the time, which is fair. Uh, but one of the cool things is so uh, the logo that we have um, is a, a little guy you know, holding a hose um, is still his name is we named him Colo. Um, and he is still the original logo from uh, the company um, in Cuba. So he brought that over here. Once he bought Columbus Pest Control, he incorporated that into uh, the logo. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I, I never realized that. I never heard that. Yeah. So Colo is Col Columbus, right? Short for yeah. Columbus. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, somewhat. So actually, which is another funny thing. He, uh, Colo is actually, um, we named it after when they came over here, the Columbus Zoo had a gorilla that my grandfather enjoyed going to see, and his name was Colo. So then, therefore, he named that. That was around the time that uh, they took over, and he named him Colo. So, not really anything to do with pest control or truly the business, but that's how it got its name. The story is like an onion. I love it. That's my new favorite mascot now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's an awesome story. You know, I'm just going to say up front here, now that I learned um, that uh, AJ speaks no Spanish, I was planning to give my presentation today in Spanish, um, and, but I don't think that's going to help matter. So, um, no, it's, it's, I'm, I guess I'll just do it in English. That, that might find yourself yeah. on, the, on the losing end, <laughs> I guess. All right. So, Mike, was there anything you had to explain ahead of with how it works i mean aka has already tortured himself with about 10 episodes it sounds like so any rundowns or we want to get started yeah we'll go through it really quick just to make sure aj you don't have any questions so essentially what's going to happen is each one of us is going to take about five minutes to cover our favorite news article or publication from about the last month and uh, we're going to have five minutes to do that and at the very end you get to decide which one of us did the best job and however that is decided is completely up to you. There is no right or wrong way to do it. All that we ask is you only name the winner. You don't have to name who second and third place is. We're far too competitive and sensitive to handle that level of criticism. So leave all that out of it and just uh, just give us who the first place winner is and, and we can call it a show. So, um, But after each one of us is done, if you have any questions at all, please feel free to uh, ask us. So that sound good? Sounds good. All right, all right sweet. Well. I think today. All right. Uh, so I'm going to be going first because I won last time. Complete fluke. I don't know if you heard, but basically because you're spelling a word. Uh, so like I said, you 
choose how we win, however you want to. Uh, just be delicate with our, our fragile egos. And then uh, I believe Jim is going to go next and Mike will be following up with the last spot. So, oh. all righty. Well, I'll go ahead and get started here on my paper. So the title of my paper is Integrated Tick Management in Guilford, Connecticut, Fipronil-based rodent bait box deployment configuration. And oh, there is a scientific uh, name here. Paramiscus leucopus, abundance, dry production, and tick burdens. So this was published in December of 2021 in the Journal of Medical Entomology and some research in Connecticut, of course, because the study was done in Connecticut. And we're talking about these targeted bait boxes. Uh, this particular one they're studying had fipronil as the active ingredient and fipronil-based rodent targeted bait boxes. It's a mouthful. These are used as an integrated pest management strategy, sometimes integrated tick strategies. Basically, you're using ticks which are pests here uh, for tick control that actually here we're targeting the rodents. So not necessarily the ticks themselves. We're targeting the rodents. We're targeting the host that the ticks feed on here. And so here we're focusing on the white-footed mice, uh, which are an important part of the black-legged tick life cycle. And of course, the black-legged tick is the main vector for Lyme disease in the northeastern United States. And this particular treatment treats the mouse instead of directly treating the tick. So essentially how this works is the mouse goes into a bait box. It may or may not consume the bait, but there's like a wick inside that's treated with fipronil, an active ingredient. And so the mouse goes into the bait box and hypothetically the mouse then uh, comes into contact with this treated and it gets fipronil on its body. And then any ticks that feed on it get, um, get, you know, subjected to the fipronil essentially and hopefully die off. And so uh, essentially here, this paper is focusing, focusing again on the white-footed mouse. And uh, so to do this study, the researchers put out 10 bait boxes on 54 residential properties, so people's backyards, in six different neighborhoods. And they left those bait boxes out for nine weeks. And then um, what they're really testing here were two different configurations. So they did a grid where they were kind of putting bait boxes and uh, two by five meter grids kind of throughout the wooded area in backyards. And then they did another configuration where they put the bait boxes just on the perimeter of the property every 10 meters. So after nine weeks, the bait boxes were collected and then they weighed them to determine how much of the bait that the rodents actually ate. And then they actually trap the rodents around the bait boxes on the property. They put them to sleep temporarily and then they collected the ticks off of the rodents. And kind of against everything we would ever do in pest control, they didn't let the rodents go because it's research. So not surprisingly, what they found here was that the more white-footed mouse mice in an area that they captured, the more of a reduction in ticks they found. And, and I mean, that's kind of makes sense, right? You have more mice going to the bay boxes, so uh, more ticks were exposed to the fipronil and uh, essentially reduced on these properties. What they found, which was really interesting, is kind of when we do tick control, we know that we're kind of looking at the change in the landscape. So from the lawn, where the lawn transitions into the woodland, we know to do our tick treatments there. Uh, but we, this paper also showed that uh, 
there was a, a bigger reduction in like tick abundance in the perimeter configuration. So uh, not only when you focus just, you know, if you're using a, a spray or your treatment strategy is particularly for the ticks, these bait boxes, that same perimeter configuration where you're going to put out your bait boxes if you're using this particular treatment is important for rodents too, which was kind of interesting because the what the researchers thought is that if you put out the bait boxes throughout the woodland area, that it would potentially be better for the rodents because they would think that rodents kind of want to be um, in the woods so they're not basically getting eaten by predators. But what they found is that the rodents actually like the perimeter and visit the bait boxes more often. Uh, so essentially, basically using this treatment, just kind of like you do your tick treatments, you want to put those bait boxes around the perimeter. And uh, that's how you're going to get the most effective treatment for this particular strategy. And that's my time. Very cool. Very nice. So this is, is not labeled yet, or is this just in the infant stages? So it is a product on the market. I, I'm not really supposed to say the trade name, and honestly, I can't, um, I can't even think of the trade name, but it's like the CDC bait box, I think, that has come out recently. Uh, so I do believe this is out on the market already. Okay. So I was, I was just wondering, is it like a, you said it's like a wick. So there's, there'd be liquid inside the bit with the bait box. Um, I never would have ever thought of that, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's like a, and now I don't know the active ingredients. So I am using a trade name, but something similar, like the thermocell and stuff. We were really focusing, of course, on the rodent here, uh, but this is like rodent bait box and you still secure it, but um, typically they're, uh, only using non-toxic baits. And then there's like a cotton wick at the top of the bait box that the rodents come in contact as they visit. So did they use any, um, you know, sensing product in there to, to know how many were coming and going or how did, did they just trap them when they came in? I, I might've missed that part. Yeah, and that's honestly really interesting. So they weren't even trapping um, and they didn't have cameras set up. So you know, the way I would have done the study would have been differently. Right. <laughs> uh, but they were actually going out at nighttime and capturing rodents around the bait boxes. And so their argument is, is like the way researchers have been doing it previously is just looking at bait consumption. So bait boxes that have more you know, more bait consumed, they assume are getting more visitation. But the problem with that is a lot of times it's one or two rodents that are close by that are eating all the bait. So you're making the assumption that a lot of rodents come in to visit where it's actually only one or two rodents visiting the bait stations. So they were trapping rodents like in the vicinity, but they don't actually know which has visited the bait stations. So the next logical step, like you said, like use remote monitoring or something so you could actually get those numbers. And that's exactly what I was wondering because I was thinking the same thing. Like I know that, you know, with rodenticides, you can have a lot of feeding by you know, two, not 17. Yeah. So, okay. Thank you. Exactly. You're welcome. Cool. Well done, Brittany. And by the way, I know that um, for the, uh, all the kids listening at home, that was like four minutes and 30 seconds, which is four yes. minutes and 21 seconds, which is right on. So nice Nailed work. It. Sweet. Our goal, AJ. I lost my train of thought. Our goal is, uh, is five minutes. So yes. uh, 
and we. I, I also, you know, as I told you before, I, I've listened quite a bit. Um, I'm, I'm not as um, technical as AJ Trelevin, you know, with his sand timer, but uh, <laughs> I'm trying to keep track as best I can. Hold you guys accountable. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, i'm waiting for somebody to show up with like an air horn one day and as soon as five minutes is up just hold the air horn down until the person stops speaking (laughs) we'll need to put a warning on that uh on that (laughs) podcast episode so people don't like crash their cars uh uh, like technicians all over the country well you know the 12 listeners that we have and uh you know just (laughs) crashing you're driving off the road (laughs) i was gonna say that was a pretty pretty confident assessment of our listener base technicians all over the country AKA whichever ones that AJ forces to, to listen to the podcast episode. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, this is uh, now it's my turn. Um, this paper is titled <clears throat> demonstration project reporting detection of subterranean termites, Platodia rhinotermitidae infestation and spray polyurethane foam. Um, this, uh, this was written by Dr. Brian Forschler at the University of Georgia and published in the Journal of Economic Entomology in January 2022. Uh, the topic of spray foam insulation and subterranean termites is familiar to lots of pest management professionals because when spray foam is applied over the substructure of buildings, it eliminates the ability of termite inspectors to perform a visual inspection of the sill plate, the band board, joist ends, and in some cases, subfloors in both crawl spaces and unfinished basements. This sometimes results in pest management companies needing to cancel existing termite warranty customers because the client has created a situation where it's just impossible to detect termites early, um, and that creates additional risk for the company. It turns out that this spray polyurethane foam insulation really does have some great benefits, though. Not only does it provide thermal insulation, but it also seals up air leaks, which improves energy efficiency in buildings. Uh, Just last year in 2021, the Georgia Structural Pest Control Commission recommended and then subsequently passed a building code amendment in Georgia that protects the ability of builders to reap the benefits of spray foam, but still preserves visual access to the sill plate and band board, which is necessary for termite inspections. So with that background, Uh, Dr. Forsler wanted to investigate how effective alternative inspection technologies were at detecting termites behind spray foam. So if you can't see it, what about alternative inspection technologies? Um, So there was an active infestation of termites that was identified um, in a building on a University of Georgia campus, and it was confirmed by Dr. Forsler. And then he had five inspectors from local pest control companies come in inspected the crawl space um, on three different dates and they were asked to um, report their findings on an NPMA 33 um, WI report. Inspectors recorded the locations in the crawl space where termites were active using visual inspections as well as various tools like moisture meters, infrared cameras and microwave motion detectors. Following the first inspection, Open and closed cell spray foam was applied side by sides to all the areas in the crawl space where the inspectors all agreed that termite activity was present. Uh, The inspectors returned the next day to inspect again using the same equipment um, and documenting their findings. But of course, insulation was now in place. They then returned a final time one month later to inspect following the removal of all the foam. 
and destructive sampling that was performed at that one month date when the foam was removed confirmed that confirmed that there was active termites in all of the identified locations except for just two places. Now, based on the, ins the results of the inspector's finding, a couple of conclusions can be drawn from this. First, intuitively, visual inspections were not effective at all at finding termite evidence after the spray foam was applied. The moisture meters and the infrared cameras also were unable to detect termite evidence through the foam. Um, microwave motion detectors were able to detect some activity through the foam, but with limited efficacy, even in those areas where they knew termites were, they didn't always detect the termites through the foam. Now, the big takeaway here is that um, spray foam insulation can definitely be problematic for termite inspectors when it's applied over areas that are critical for visual inspections. So for PMPs, when consulting with your customers who are considering spray foam installation, it is best to recommend that these areas that are critical for visual inspection, like the sill plate and the band board, in those areas, removable insulation should be used so that inspectors can see these important parts of the wooden substructure and identify termite infestations early. That's it. I would uh, strongly agree with that. As a matter of fact, I've, I've read that piece before. Um, we've you know dealt with that obviously um, for quite a few years. Um, uh, my issue, uh, my my question for that, um, other than that, I, I'm pretty familiar with it. Is did they share what kind of time frame those inspections were taking in each of those three um, inspections? You know, so how much time was spent in the crawl space for these? Yes. I mean, honestly, I would imagine, you know, if there's spray foam installed, not a lot to see. They're not spending, you know, a whole lot of time. Um, not that that plays into, you know, a, a true termite inspection should be thorough um, and take as much time as needed. But um, that's something that I worry about is, that, you know, if you're not only if you're getting in a crawl space and you're looking up there, you see it spray foam, you might be more apt to um, kind of rush through some things thinking that you're not going to see anything. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't recall if there were, um, if the times for the inspections were reported there actually, it was interesting in this, um, in this paper, they noted some additional information that was submitted to the structural pest, the Georgia structural pest control commission that had some statements from the inspector. So that might be there if we wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Um, but these are the same inspectors that had already found termites with visual inspection. So they were kind of predisposed yeah. to look in the same places. That's true. Um, and they did note that um, for the visual inspections, even when they knew where, where to look for termites, they still weren't able to see anything on the surface. So there was no evidence the termites hadn't chewed through even a month later. Um, there was one location where there, there seemed to be some discoloration where there were tubes that were, um, that were uh, being built, um, mud tubes behind. Um, but that wouldn't be re a reliable um, method of inspection at all. Uh, so, you know, I just, I think this is just a case where it, um, you know, I don't know that it's going to be, I don't, I don't think people are going to stop using spray foam insulation. There's some real benefits. I mean, there's some absolute, you know, right. it's, um, and that's the reason why infrared cameras don't work because you're not going to, you know, it's, it's insulation after all. Um, it's air sealing. So like canine inspections don't work because the smell of the termites not getting through that. Um, and so the question is, you know, what will work? It seals up the moisture. 
Um, um, and what works is a visual inspection. And most of that building is already all covered up, right? We know that most of a building for a termite inspection is already completely covered. And so in this case, um, you know, we do have that small window. And so the best recommendation at this point is to tell your customer, you can spray foam, you know, pretty much everything else, yeah. but leave us that window, that critical window between the foundation and that, and that first point of contact for the wooden substructure. And that at the very least gives us a, a, a fighting chance to identify termites. Okay. I would agree. The only other thing I have a question and I would, I don't, I don't recall it being in that article is, you know, always a concern of mine with spray foam, you know, is almost more um, carpenter ants, you know, how many times you can have a bad door, you know, sliding glass door and it'll hide that as well. Do you know what, kind of moisture it would hide in general on that sill plate, um, wherever underneath that door may be. Um, could it hide it, hold in that moisture tight enough that it would continue to create more problems inside uh, that insulated area? There was some notes in the paper about a moisture. There was a moisture issue in this particular um, crawl space. Um, it was, a, it was a tall crawl space. I think it was like a six foot tall crawl space, but they definitely had some moisture issues in there, uh, because they noted that there was, um, I believe some fungus or mildew that was growing on the wood to begin with. And, um, there's no reason to think that, um, that water is going to be able to escape through that, um, especially closed cell foam. Um, I'm not an expert on how, you know, what the hydrodynamics of that might be. And so I wouldn't want to speculate too much, um, but it definitely is going to be limiting airflow. Um, and so I would assume there wouldn't be much water vapor escape either. Yep. All right. Good job. Cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good job, Jim. Thanks. Okay. I like how you guys give me that positive affirmation. Good, good job, Jim. <laughs> You talked again. I learned something from you guys every week. It's it's good for me too. Yep. Jim made the mouth noises. He did it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jimbo. <laughs> Great mouth noises. Until next week. As yeah. long as you're not making noises out of other areas, I'm cool with it. Demerit, Brittany. Demerit. This is a Don't family podcast. God. Edit that out. Edit it out. It's fine. <laughs> spend, spend half my life editing Brittany's commentary. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So uh, saving the best or worst for last here, we'll try to get in and out of this in five minutes. Um, the paper that I'm covering today is hot off the presses. It was just published February 4th, 2022 in the journal Nature Communications. Um, <clears throat> so the title of this paper, because I got yelled at last time for talking too much before the title, and we officially start the timer on the title. So you're literally doing it wrong. Hey, hey, blah, blah, blah. Mouth. So can I start the time or not start the time? As soon as, as soon as I read the title, hold on. The olfactory gating of visual preferences to human skin, invisible spectra in mosquitoes. All right, here we go. We know that hungry mosquitoes rely on a combination of odor and visual cues to help them find their next meal. These cues can include things like carbon dioxide, which is what we exhale when we breathe out, body heat, motion, high contrast between dark and light objects, and even color to some degree. 
uh, better understanding exactly how all these factors work together, which can get very complicated, could potentially unlock new ways to better protect ourselves from hungry mosquitoes and the deadly diseases that they spread. We know that one of the most important stimuli for mosquitoes is carbon dioxide. In fact, it's the presence of CO2 that basically jumpstarts the mosquitoes' other senses. So we typically think of CO2 as like a long range detection. And then it's those other sensory cues that are cued in once they detect CO2 to help them pinpoint the exact location of that host. The authors of this paper that I'm covering here wanted to take that understanding one step further to evaluate what role color or specifically wavelength may play in helping mosquitoes to find a host once they've detected the presence of CO2. So to do this, the researchers used a sophisticated wind tunnel that was armed with 16 different cameras to track the flight path and landing behavior of female Aedes aegypti, also known as the yellow fever mosquitoes, in the presence of different visual and odor cues over a series of trials. In one set of experiments, the researchers monitored the mosquito's flight path and landing behavior towards different colored dots in the presence or absence of CO2 in the wind tunnel. So they performed the same experiment once with CO2 in the wind tunnel and then once without. When the wind tunnel was absent of CO2, the mosquitoes just flew around and mostly ignored the colored dots. But when they introduced CO2, they noted that mosquitoes repeatedly flew to and or landed on red, orange, black, and cyan colored dots. This initial experiment confirmed that the presence of CO2 caused mosquitoes to exhibit a visual preference for colors that fell in the longer wavelength spectrum, which is the colors covers those ranges. This also happens to be the same spectral range that human skin gives off when reflecting light. So in a series of follow-up experiments, researchers repeated the same set, <clears throat> the same setup to monitor mosquito behavior, but this time they used human skin tone colored cards and they even added a human hand in an additional set of experiments to evaluate those same preferences. Once again, when CO2 was absent, mosquitoes just flew around. But in the presence of CO2, the mosquitoes flew towards these visual stimulants. And if they used filters to either filter out those long wavelengths to essentially mask that wavelength um, of the human skin tone color cards, or if they put a green glove on the hand, they noted that the mosquitoes behaved as though they couldn't locate those objects. So with this study, researchers showed that the presence of CO2 caused yellow fever mosquitoes to prefer colors such as cyan, orange, and red. Those colors also happen to match the color spectrum of human skin. So the, the assumption here is that that is a primary driver in a visual wavelength preference for mosquitoes to help them in that closer range location. Now, because yellow fever mosquito is active during the day, PMPs are regularly exposed to this species, so are homeowners and the diseases that they spread. A common recommendation is to help reduce uh, attractiveness to daytime biting mosquitoes has long been to avoid wearing dark clothing because this could potentially provide contrast between you and the background. Now we know to add red and orange colored clothing to that recommendation when possible, giving PMPs one additional uh, protective measure in addition to using insect repellent when working in the field. <clears throat> so I've got a little bit of time here. So I do wanna add one thing um, in terms of uh, what this study did and did not cover. They did only look at one mosquito species and it is well documented that different species can have different preferences to different wavelengths and things like that. So it's important to notate that this was only looking at uh, Aedes aegypti, um, but still nonetheless, a really important study helping to uh, advance our understanding of visual preferences and how they locate hosts. So I'll stop there to match Jim's time.
Um, well but otherwise, uh, do you have any questions? I, um, I've heard about the dark color thing. I guess I, you know, so with the colors, it would be interesting to know how many other species would agree with those same colors. Uh, I know you said it wasn't part of the study, um, but from your professional expertise, do you think that they would kind of fall in line or? I think that one important driver here for the species that they used is that this species regularly preys on humans. So they will actively feed on humans. So it would make sense that they would be predisposed to that wavelength preference. Different, and even to that specific point, they've shown that different species of mosquitoes respond to different levels of CO2 um, based on the host that they prefer. Some species that may prefer to feed on like horses and cattle may respond to a higher output of CO2 versus something that would feed on a smaller mammal like a human that would typically respond to a smaller amount of CO2. So my guess is that that wavelength preference for what light is reflected off of our skin better suits that species of mosquito that also actively preys on us. Um, so it could be slightly different if you've got a mosquito species that tends to feed on horses or deer or cattle or things like that. So that'd be my guess. Sounds good. All right. So now I have to choose which one of you win. Is that correct? Moment yeah. of truth. It's the easy part. I've been trying to figure out how I was going to do this. And it, you know, one of the ways I was thinking, you know, other than just going off how well you guys did was um, off of what, what colleges you guys went to. Jim, I'm not sure. I don't remember where you went to school. Um, I, I see you have a diploma there. I just don't see what it says. <laughs> I, uh, I got, it I, says I, insert I printed diploma here. Millersville University of Pennsylvania. So okay, well that might finest, be the winner. The finest, the finest college in Millersville, Pennsylvania. I, I I was mainly worried in my football realm is is that I'm not a big SEC fan. I know I have two Florida uh, people here, but uh, I did my master's at Virginia Tech. If that helps at all, I mean it does help a little bit. But now, yeah. honestly, um, you guys all did very well. Um, I, you know, always learn something when I listen to this podcast. Um, I'm going to have to go with Brittany, um, cause it's probably where I learned the most, um, as far as in, in, in just being interesting, um, with, with that whole, uh, scale in, in the, using Frippinel, um, for ticks, um, in that, that, uh, capacity. So it was very interesting and I'm interested to, uh, to look into that for sure. So congratulations, Brittany, the other two, you did great. Right I behind it. Thank you for the ego boost. in this group, so I'm not surprised by that win. I'll take it. You know, Mike, I used to think that it, um, that it was some sort of coincidence that people always chose Brittany, but I'm really starting to believe that there is um, an intellect gap between <laughs> you and I and Brittany, and she is just uh, she's. I really need to step it up for next time. So uh, well, appreciate well, I have that. To, day. I have to say, you know. Um, obviously, I didn't mention in the beginning, you know, my involvement in Ohio Pest Management Association. Uh, we have had the, the pleasure of having Jim um, and Mike at our meetings. We have not had the pleasure of having Brittany yet. And it just shows me that uh, we're, we're missing out and we need to have all three of you at some point. Um, hey, AJ, 
I'm not sure the space that Brittany's sitting in can handle the capacity of her head as it continues to grow <laughs> while you pile these compliments on. And the fact that she's now a back-to-back -back winner is going to make her very difficult to be around and deal with over the next few weeks until we record the next episode. So. Uh I can understand that. And uh, like I said, congratulations, Brittany. And I'm sorry to you too, um, <laughs> building that up. But, but uh, again, thank you for having me. Um, and thank you for all you guys do uh, with MPMA. Um, I know it's not necessarily my, my platform, but I, uh, I always try to tell people that are in the industry to get involved. Um, it's, a, it's a great industry to be a part of. And so that's awesome. Thank you <laughs> thank so much. Thank you man. so much. And you, know, I just and you have get to hang out with these three. <laughs> Absolutely. And it is 100% your platform. That's what we want members to shout it from the rooftops. Want to know that you're enjoying your experiences. You're, I mean, we appreciate you volunteering and um, absolutely always want you to, to spread the word, spread the message about MQMA because, I mean, we're only as strong as our members and we appreciate people like you. Absolutely. Thanks, Thank man. You. We'll have to do it again sometime. Thanks. You guys have a good one. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right, well, that's a wrap for another edition of the NPMA Bug Bites podcast. And if you found this particularly interesting and you want to take a deeper dive, head on over to npmapestology.com where you can learn more about some of the science covered today and in other episodes. That's right. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the release of another new episode. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. MPMA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science news and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find links to the science discussed in this episode, as well as technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers in pest control by visiting mpmapestworld.org.